Welcome to Dojo Discussions. I'm your host, J.M. Smith, and the purpose of this podcast series is to provide answers to commonly asked questions that listeners send in. We do this via Facebook live stream, and then the audio is pulled and compiled and added to our podcast. So I hope you enjoy it. If you have questions on anything related to God, the Bible, faith, culture, um, ethical issues, politics, anything like that, anything you've ever just wondered about, go to www.discipledojo.org and you can submit questions through the contact page there. Without further ado, let's get into this session. We are, this week, we're in horizontal view for those of you who are watching. Uh, if you are able to tune in, how's my hair looking? Thinning as usual, I'm sure. If you're not able to tune in live here on Facebook, that's okay because we are recording this audio. We're going to upload it onto the podcast. So you don't want to miss it. Go to discipledojo.org slash podcast. It's just that simple. You can listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, uh, or you can watch, well, this one you can't watch on YouTube. All the other ones you can watch on YouTube, but those are the ways you can subscribe. So be sure to do that. Today, I had a question by a good friend of mine, Lim, you know you're out there, was how do we read and understand the early chapters of Genesis? And it's a fantastic question. Um, there's a quote that I'm going to start off with by C.S. Lewis about Genesis and his quote is, the first qualification for judging any piece of workmanship from a corkscrew to a cathedral is to know what it is, what it was intended to do, and how it was meant to be used. I love that quote. I'm going to read it again because we don't have PowerPoint here for you to soak it in. The first qualification for judging any piece of workmanship from a corkscrew to a cathedral is to know what it is, what it was intended to do, and how it is meant to be used. If we want to understand Genesis and how to interpret it, we have to know what it is, what it was meant to convey, and how we're supposed to use it. The problem that most Christians have, and I, when I say most Christians, I'm referring to modern, typically Western, but not necessarily Western, because this spans, I mean, I teach this in India, and they have the same questions as we do, so it's not a Western thing. But most modern post-scientific Christians, so after the rise of modernism and, and scientific discovery, most Christians open Genesis, and immediately their first questions are scientific questions. Because we're taught science from an early age, right? We're taught you know, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. And then Pluto gets taken off, so just through Neptune. But then they put Pluto back on. And then there's another one out there that's like Pluto. But then, you know, like, we learn astronomy. We watch Neil deGrasse Tyson on the Cosmos series and, and you know, um, think it's just absolutely fascinating. Stephen Hawking explaining black holes and relativity and all this stuff. And it's just fascinating. We grew up learning about dinosaurs. We grew up learning about cavemen. We grew up, once you go to a sheltered Christian school or you're homeschooled, this is the stuff you learn at an early age. Um, you know, galaxy formation, Big Bang cosmology, uh, the strong force, the weak, the weak force, the electromagnetic spectrum. I mean, all of these things that we just kind of learn as we grow up. So when we think of creation, when we think of the universe, that's where our mind goes. 
plate tectonics, geology, formation of life on earth, biological development, because that's the world that we live in. We live in a scientific world and it's not a bad thing. I am speaking to you on YouTube or not YouTube on Facebook live through the advancements of modern scientific discovery. Our self, this live thing would not be working right now without GPS satellites. And those depend on physics of orbital mechanics. And those depend on the earth being round and the cosmos being what it is and satellites being able to do what they do. Um, all of this stuff is birthed out of a scientific worldview. And the scientific worldview was birthed out of the Judeo-Christian Islamic worldview. I mean, most things that we think about scientifically, some of the giants of science came, they were either from the church or the mosque. You know, we, we get like concepts, our numbers are called Arabic numerals. You know, we learn algebra, that's an Arabic word. Um, because the Muslim Middle Eastern mathematicians gave us so much of what we learn about math. We look in a telescope that was created by a Christian. Galileo was a Christian. He wasn't against the church. The, the whole Galileo controversy was a thing between scientists, all of whom were Christians, about whether the earth is flat or whether the earth is round. And, you know, they had it was a whole it was a whole big thing. Um, Gregor Mendel discovering modern genetics or, or at least hereditary genetics. Um, Tycho Brahe, uh, Isaac Newton. Um, the list goes on and on. You could you could continue. Lord Kepler. Uh, all of these people, these are theistic Christian or later or earlier time uh, Muslim, Middle Eastern. These are all believers in God. So the scientific concept did not come out of a pagan environment where the universe is ruled by gods and goddesses who are capricious and arbitrary, but it came out of a theistic worldview that believed this creation is the creation of a God who is a designer who cares for his creation and who has set the world up in a way that things work in certain ways that are predictable, that are observable, that are repeatable. And the scientific method arose from within that worldview. Only later did there become a conflict between science and faith. That was later. In the early days, there was no conflict. And so we want to be careful of that when we're studying Genesis, reading Genesis or talking about Genesis, because what we have to do is exactly what C.S. Lewis says. We have to see what it is and what it isn't. Because if we end up, if you use something, uh, like I could take this phone and I could probably hammer a nail into something. Probably. I mean, I'd turn the case side. I wouldn't use the screen unless I'm doing an infomercial with those indestructible screens that they actually do that to show you how strong it is. I could take this phone and probably hammer a nail into a board. That's a terrible use for this phone. It may work, but it's probably going to do a lot of damage to my phone and do a mediocre job at best of hammering the nail. Well, it's like that with Genesis and science. If we try to use Genesis to do science, we may arrive at some things that, that fit together, but that's not what Genesis was written for. The earliest readers of Genesis weren't using it to figure out the cosmos we might arrive at some truth, but we're not using it as it was intended. And the same thing with science to interpret Genesis. If we interpret the Bible through the lens of science, so every time we read something in the Bible, we find the scientific corollary and go, ah, that means this. Oh, this is teaching the Big Bang. Oh, there's dinosaurs in Job. Oh, you know, 
any of this stuff, we've already lost the plot and we're misusing science because we're using trying to get science to interpret literature. And they're very different things. And scripture is literature. I mean, yeah, it is. I'm an evangelical Christian. I that what separates me from some of my more liberal Christian mainline theological friends is that I don't believe the Bible is God's words about or man's words about God. I believe the Bible is fundamentally the words that God inspired human authors to use in human language to speak to other humans, but from God. In other words, what he desired. And we talk about this in Bible for the rest of us. So if you haven't ever taken that course, go to Disciple Dojo, click on spiritual training, drop down video courses, click on Bible for the rest of us and take that course because we spend a whole, uh, the whole course talking about how to read and interpret the Bible at a big picture level. But that's what we, when we come to Genesis, that we, what's we, what we need to understand is that we're reading words that yes, God did inspire the biblical authors, but he didn't, he didn't dictate. He wasn't like Moses as the compiler of Genesis, whether Moses originally wrote the Genesis accounts or whether he compiled them from sources, another debate for another time. Regardless, it's not like God said, Moses, here's what you're going to write. You're going to say, and then Moses was like, you know, stenographers in the courtroom, the old lady, usually an old lady, sometimes a younger lady. I've never seen a guy. Maybe there are guy stenographers. I don't know. But usually it's somebody and they're just like, you know, blah, 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 and their fingers are doing this weird thing. And then they have a printout of every word that's said because they are literally, I mean, they have these weird little stenographer type typewriters. They are literally tracking the conversation. Scripture doesn't do that. Scripture is never the prophets, the apostles, the writers of scripture are never divine stenographers. They're humans writing to other humans in human language within human cultures but communicating divine truth through their writings. And so in Genesis 1, we shouldn't be surprised when we read Genesis 1 that in many ways, it sounds a lot like other creation myths from the cultures around Israel. That shouldn't surprise us. Now, some people are like, wait, what? You know, I've never even heard that. But anybody that's taken an introduction to religion class or a world religions class, your professor, depending on how uh, professory they were, taught you about the similarities between the Genesis accounts and the Sumerian, the Babylonian, the Akkadian, the Egyptian accounts that Israel's surrounding cultures that were actually older than Genesis. And some professors make a big deal of this. Ha! Moses actually copied from the Babylonian Enuma Elish or the Atrahasis epic. And you can see, because here's how Moses copied and changed things, and the Israelites just took their myth and made it their own. That's a horribly simplistic, that's actually an intellectually dishonest way. So if you did take a class or you do take a class and you hear somebody uh, present it that way, just know they're intentionally dumbing it down, paving over the differences, and relying on your ignorance to sound convincing. Just know that's what's going on, because, you know, they're, Professors are people too, and people are honest and dishonest. And a lot of times, that's what you're going to hear. So I just want to prepare you. Um, but at the same time, what they're seeing, the, the similarities to ancient Near East myths and Genesis, they're legitimately there. Genesis legitimately does swim in the same currents 
of other ancient Near East cosmological myths. Because Genesis is an ancient Near East cosmological myth. Now, whether that means it's true or false is a different question. Because a myth can be a myth and be true. Uh, in fact, sometimes God, mythos is the Greek term. It's where we get the word myth from. That's a term to describe a type of writing. And the Bible has a number of passages that are mythos, that are presented in ways that are mythical. But like Lewis and Tolkien and these guys uh, were fond of saying, it's the Bible gives us what they believe, what we believe is the true myth, like the one that's right, that all the others kind of almost reach, almost get to but not quite. And so in Genesis, what we read sounds a little bit in many ways, and we're going to go through Genesis. I don't know how far we'll get today. These, If you're just tuning in, these podcasts are usually about an hour, and then I cut it down the audio a little bit sometimes and put it up. So I don't know how far we'll get in Genesis early chapters, but I'm, we're setting the stage because it's so much more important for you to understand how to read the book than for me to just tell you what I think it means. And that's Disciple Dojo's goal. We always want to equip you to know how to think about things, not what you need to think about things. So with Genesis, if you read, so there, there are other creation accounts, you know, um, there's the mother goddess creation of man. These are Babylonian, Sumerian, Akkadian accounts. There's the paradise myth. There's the deluge, the Enuma Elish, um, the Gilgamesh epic, the Sumerian King's List, the Eridu account, these are ancient Near East myth, creation myths that have similarities to Genesis. Um, the terms that Genesis uses, the Hebrew words for things like sun, moon, sea, these are names of gods in the Babylonian or the Sumerian or the Akkadian mythologies. So um, like in the Akkadian literature, the sun god, his name was Shamash. Well, Shemesh is the Hebrew word for sun. And so when other ancient Near Easterners are describing the birth of their gods, what they're describing is their concept of creation. And so in Genesis, when it starts, what you start getting is its concept of creation, but using the categories of myth that the surrounding culture was already familiar with. Because that's how literature works. That's how human literature works. We, we write and communicate within the culture that we are part of. So if we want to know what Genesis was intended to communicate, we don't start with 21st century biology, genetics, astrophysics, paleontology. We don't start there. We start with ancient Near East concepts of, of purpose, covenant, gods, goddesses, uh, heaven, earth, or sky, land, these concepts, and we ask the questions, what's their relationship to each other, and what's their relationship to us? Where do we fit in? Because all cosmologies were meant to give, where did the human, where does the human fit in to this story? Who are we? What's our story? What's our purpose? Where did we come from? So these are the things that Genesis was intended to give Israel as part of the covenant. The covenant spans uh, all of uh, the Bible, but particularly in the first covenant spans all of the, what we would call the Old Testament. Genesis is getting Israel set or prepared for where they fit into the story of God's covenant. So the terms that are used throughout Genesis are covenantal terms, 
Things like be fruitful, multiply, fill, rule, subdue, um, govern. These are terms in Genesis. They have covenant meaning. They're not, they don't have primarily scientific meaning. They have significance as theological descriptions or covenant titles. The things that are talked about in Genesis, the things in the creation account that are mentioned are the, the animals and the plants that specifically Israel had daily contact with. It, not everything is mentioned that's created in Genesis. Not everything is specifically mentioned, only specific things. And when you look, those things are the things that Israel had daily relationship with as agrarian ancient Near East society in that part of the world. Uh, because, I mean, why does God need to tell Israel about penguins? I mean, they'll never, an Israelite would ne never saw a penguin, ever. An Israelite never saw a polar bear. An Israelite never saw a kangaroo. Why would God need to describe or talk about or even, why would it, why would it even matter? Much less things that are already extinct, like dinosaurs, right? Israel, there's no, that is, adds nothing of value to understanding where Israel fits in the covenant that God has made with Israel in the redemption of the world, the macro story of scripture. So we may want to know all those things. We may want to know, were there penguins on the ark? How'd they get there? You know, what did, before there was the death in the world, what did sharks eat seaweed? Like what's going on? You know, and, and, and we build whole museums, creation museums, ark experiences to try to fill in the gaps with these scientific answers to how things could have, literal readings of the text could have happened. And we start bending over backwards to try to, uh, it's just an exercise in getting away from the text. And the irony is ministries and organizations that do that pride themselves on teaching the text, taking the text seriously. But they really don't do that so any more than anybody else who reads and wrestles with Genesis and doesn't arrive at the same conclusions that they do. And so this is something, I say this because you see this in a lot of like, particularly homeschool curriculum or Christian school curriculum or televangel, I mean like TV preachers, um, you know, Christian discernment ministries, which is basically a code word for getting online and telling every Christian that you disagree with why you think they're wrong and unchristian. Um, there, in these circles, there's, there's particular views of Genesis that they say, if you don't believe what we're saying, if you don't read Genesis this way, if you don't believe in a literal six-day creation that was roughly six to 10,000 years ago, if you don't believe in a global flood that literally covered the entire earth to you know however many miles of water, if you don't believe these things, you don't take the Bible seriously. And therefore, you get this wrong, you're going to get the gospel wrong. And again, that's the that's like the fundamentalist flip side of the of the dishonest professor of religions. That's a dishonest. When you hear ministries doing that, that's dishonest. That's intellectually dishonest. Now they may believe it, they may be firm about it, but it's dishonest to say if you disagree with this tangential interpretation of the text and the science that we're showing you behind why we think it's that way, then you will get the gospel wrong. That is that does not follow. That is a non sequitur because from the beginning of Judeo-Christian history, people have had various approaches when they read Genesis and especially the early chapters of Genesis. There is no one Christian view 
that the church has always believed and everybody that believes differently is just a modern godless pagan Darwinist blah 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 it's not true it's just not true so don't fall for that if you ever hear it as well-meaning as they are you don't have to go slam your preacher if he gives you something from answers in Genesis or the Ark experience or Ken Ham or something like you don't have to create conflict but just know that that is a view of how to read Genesis not the view of how to read Genesis. Super important to get this clear, to prevent a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of caricatures and straw men that people put out there, Christian and non-Christian, about the, uh, uh, the authority of Genesis. So um, let's dig into a little bit uh, of the text itself. Uh, it, Genesis has similarity, especially the early. When I say Genesis and this, I'm going to be primarily talking about the part of Genesis that we're talking about, which is chapters 1 through 11. In chapter 12, Abram comes on the scene. We know him as Father Abraham. And from Abram on, the focus of Genesis zooms in on him and his family. Genesis 12 through 50. Everything before that, Genesis 1 through 11, is to get us, to get the world up to the point where when Abram comes on the scene, we are ready for the story to begin. And that's why I called Genesis 1 through 11 the preface to the Bible. Um, it's, the, it's the beginning narration. Let me, let me give another example. Um, you seen Lord of the Rings, the movie? If you've read the books, if you read the Lord of the Rings books, at the end of the books, there's the appendices. And J.R. Tolkien, because he was a super nerd, came up with this entire world with languages and cultures and histories and ages and mythologies. Like he created all this background. And that was behind the scenes of the story of the Lord of the Rings that started in The Hobbit. Well, when they made a movie version, the director and writers, Peter Jackson and um, Fran Walsh and, and Philippa, I can't remember her last name, but they got together. They had a decision to make. We have Tolkien has these pages and pages and pages and chapters of material. How in the world do we introduce an audience at a movie theater, most of whom are not going to read this or never have read this? How do we introduce them to this world? So that by the time the movie starts, they at least know where they are and what is the overall point of this story. How do you do that? What they decided on, go back and watch Lord of the Rings, the first movie. What they decided on was to have Kate Blanchett's character do a voiceover. And it was, I think it was like 10 minutes long. I mean, it was the opening of the movie that said, when the Dark Lord created the rings, he gave this many to the race of men, this many to the race of elves. The Tolkien nerds are going to jump on me because I'm not getting this right. Um, I'm a C.S. Lewis nerd, not a Tolkien nerd, but I appreciate Tolkien nerddom. He started, they started the movie writers with, this is how the rings were created. And then it just started, these characters would pop up. And Isildur uh, got it and did such and such. And then uh, the elf, I can't remember his name, um, Mr. Smith from The Matrix, his character, uh, waged war. And then after the battle, duh, 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 and then the ring betrayed, and then duh, duh, other ages rose up. And there's 
it's crazy. Like you're watching this preface to this movie and you're seeing waves of armies marching out against other armies and this dark Lord swinging this uh, thing. And you see a ring on his finger and you're like, Oh, that ring is important. And he's just bashing people. And then all of a sudden ah, he gets the ring cut off and it flies away. And, and then it's grabbed by a dude. And then that dude wears it and carries it. And, uh, but then it betrays him and then he gets killed and then the ring. Da, da, da. So it's this whole panoply of story fantasy geekdom that you're either thinking this is the greatest thing I've ever seen or you're like wait what's going on but regardless it's getting you the main information you're getting hints and glimpses of concept and characters that may come along later but ultimately the ring that that's voiceover ends with this little golemy which we find out it is golem hand grabbing the ring and taking it and that's how and then we find that you know it, it's found by a hobbit later and then a little hobbit hand grabs it and takes it and that alludes to the fact that there's a ring a guy who has it as a hobbit whatever they are and that ring is super important and was created by the dark lord and could potentially rule the world okay so that's how they did it Lord, with the Lord of the Rings. So they took hundreds of pages of material and they just did this 10 minute voiceover that introduced all these things that they were going to unpack later or some not unpack at all. They just gave you glimpses. But the whole point was to get to that final scene where the little hobbit has the ring and then the title screen, Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring. Then it pops up. And so you go from this massive cosmic event and battles and worlds and ages and empires and armies and all of this stuff happening. The thing that's traced through this entire storyline that gets you to the title is that ring and its importance. So by the time you get to the, the opening scene, Gandalf on the cart and Frodo comes in the woods and meets him and then they start talking. You already have in your head this massive background of there's a ring, it's super important, and the fate of the world somehow rests on it. Then they start the story. Well, think about all of that. That's what Genesis 1 through 11 is. That's what Genesis 1 through 11 does. Instead of the ring, it's the covenant. Instead of the ring, it's how God is going to fix the world, how the world went wrong, what the effects of that fall looked like throughout the ages, and how God set in motion a plan through one family, this one dude named Abram that we meet in Genesis 12, how he and his descendants and ultimately his one true heir are going to rescue the world. That's the story that's the story of the Bible at a macro level. Genesis 1 through 11 is to get us sufficient, give us sufficient background so that by the time we get to this guy coming on the scene, Abram, son of Terah, we have an understanding of where we are in the world and kind of what's happened thus far. And when God makes this promise to Abram in the beginning of chapter 12, we have a world to ground that promise in. That's what Genesis 1 through 11 gives us. So when we're reading, so because of that, like think back to the Lord of the Rings analogy, watching that opener, you can go on Netflix or something, pull it up, just watch the first 10 minutes or so. You have so many questions, so many questions. 
Like, well, who's that guy? What, what's this army? Are these elves the same as these elves? Okay, wait, who's this group of men? Now there's these group of, who's the dark lord, his forces, the, the witch king, and all this kind of, you have all of these questions. And some of them get answered later in the movie. But many of them don't. You would have to know the background of Tolkien to understand them. And even then, there's still some questions you would have. Genesis 1 through 11 is maddeningly like that. It gives us these massive accounts of worldwide, universal, cosmic events and tantalizes us with some details without giving us the answers to the questions we immediately start asking. Where did Cain get his wife? How did he go build a city? I mean, that means there must have been more people, but the Bible's only told us so far, Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel. And all of a sudden, Cain goes off and builds a city. How do you do that? Um, we get tiny glimpses. What, who are the sons of God and the daughters of man? And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, as if we're supposed to know who that is. Well, the ancient readers knew who that was. And it may be something that has been lost over time that we'll never know who that was. We can guess. We can look at ancient Near East backgrounds and we can make um, you know, educated assumptions. But at the end of the day, there are things in Genesis 1 through 11 that we have to go, don't know. How many animals were on the ark? I mean, yes, two of every animal, but of every animal in the entire world or of every animal in that region that got flooded? Does that mean that there were penguins that waddled their way to the ark? I mean, that would take some supernatural divine intervention that the text never mentions. Um, was there like, like the tower of Babel? How, what was that? Was it like a tower, like in the paintings or was it a ziggurat, which is what you would find in the ancient Near East? Um, how tall was it? Everybody spoke the same language. Does that mean there was only one language or does that mean that everybody spoke a language that they could all understand even while having their own languages? These are the questions that we ask of the text, and it's just like the Tolkien Lord of the Rings opener. We may ask questions that that opening segment of the movie doesn't give us the answer to. Do, they, do we then get mad at the movie or say, well, this is a crappy movie because it didn't answer my No. We go, huh, that's interesting. I have a question about that, but it doesn't answer it. So the director and the writers, they must want me to focus on something else in the story because that's what they are writing about. Well, scriptures like that. The Genesis accounts, the creation accounts, they're like that. They'll give us detail, but they give us in a very stylized and structured way what God wants Israel, covenant Israel in the ancient Near East, surrounded by Egyptians, surrounded by Babylonians, surrounded by Assyrians. He gives Israel what he wants them to know in the language, in the culture, in the literary forms that they are already familiar with from their neighbors' various cosmologies. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's like when Paul in Acts, when Paul goes to Mars Hill and he preaches at the Areopagus, he starts preaching to the, the, the uh, Stoics and the Epicureans and the pagans, and he starts by pointing out the tomb of the unknown God, Acts 17. He takes a cultural thing that they all know about, and he says, hey, this thing, let me tell you about the God who's behind it. Let me give you the real version. Let me tell you the true myth of the God who you think is unknown, who I'm going to make known to you. And he goes on to preach. He even cites two pagan poets in his sermon in Acts chapter 17. 
Why? Because what those pagan poets were saying, Paul's like, hey, guess what? That's true. Let me explain it more. So for the ancient Near East cultures around Israel that had these myths and these cosmogenies and these understandings of where their gods came from and how they were birthed and how they overcome the forces of chaos and evil and brought about creation, all these concepts, it's like the author of Genesis says, yeah, hey, let me tell you how it really went down. But he uses those same concepts. It's not like he says, hey, you ancient savages, you don't even, you're dwelling in the desert in tents and you fire in the wheel or majest, you know, a majestic thing for you. Let me drop some scientific knowledge on you. No, no, the author doesn't do that. That would have had no meaning whatsoever to the ancient audience. Most of the questions that we have about Genesis would not make sense to the first readers of Genesis that it was written to. So we're free to ask them, but we have to ask them as secondary questions going, hey, this is not the point of the text. So I need to make sure I understand what the point of the text is first before I then start saying, now how does this fit with my post-enlightenment scientific worldview? And that's where some things may have to get filtered through. And we'll look at these in, in, in upcoming episodes of Dojo Discussions. Uh, you know, I'm not just going to only talk about Genesis and not look at Genesis. We're going to look at it. But you have to lay this groundwork that we've been talking about. You have to have this. We have to, like C.S. Lewis said, before you can judge any piece of work from a corkscrew to a cathedral, you have to know what it is, why it was created, what's its purpose. The purpose of Genesis, what is it? It is elevated prose. It's not quite poetry. It's not simple prose like Genesis 12 through 50. Genesis 1 through 11 is very stylized. It's very elevated in its language, but it is prose. So we can't just sit, open it, and start reading it like we would read Deuteronomy or Matthew. We can't, we can't flatten the Bible like fundamentalists and like skeptics both do. We have to respect the genres of the different books of the Bible on their own terms. So Genesis 1 is elevated prose that doesn't have any uh, equal in the ancient world. In terms of genre, there's nothing exactly like Genesis 1 through 11. There are things that are close. You know, there are in Babylonian myths, Egyptian myths, Egyptian myths, even Greco-Roman myths, there are things that are similar to the, what we read in Genesis 1 through 11, but they're never exactly the same. And the differences between Genesis and the various creation myths of its surrounding cultures far outweigh the similarities. And that's something that you know professors of religion or comparative religion scholars, they like to present and show you all the ways they're similar. Oh, Gilgamesh had a flood. Atrahasis epic had an ark that was built. The Sumerians' kings list had long ages of these antediluvian pre-flood kings. They try to, they'll point out the similarities and the similarities are there and they're legit and they're fascinating. But the differences between those accounts and the creation account make the similarities almost disappear. Almost, not quite. So we want to be careful in, in analyzing and evaluating this stuff. Um, and we may look at some of these, more of these as we go, but we're coming up on, we'll probably go for a few more minutes and then uh, call it a day. Uh, if you really want to dive deep on some of this stuff and on the science, if you're a science nerd and you really like the scientific understanding, uh, go to Disciple Dojo's video page, discipledojo.org slash video, 
and there's a course called The Bible and Science, Friends or Foes. And I think it's five sessions. Each one's about an hour or so, I think. Uh, it was recorded years ago at a church that I taught it at in Georgia. But we walk through the history of science and, and faith and the interplay between the two. And then in the second part of the course, we walk through Genesis 1 specifically, like verse by verse. And we go into much more detail about the ancient Near East myths that Genesis 1 swims in the same currents as. And we compare them and we talk about them. So check that out. That's 100% free. You can do it for yourself. You can do it as a small group, uh, you know, if you got a Sunday school group or student ministry, whatever. It's all free. And there's a PDF workbook. Click on it. Download the workbook. It has all the quote uh, citations. It has images that we use. Um, it has the, the references, a bibliography, all that stuff. You can geek out for sure uh, on that, which is what this ministry, why we put it out there. But there's some major differences between Genesis and the other creation accounts in the neighboring cultures. And they're more important than the similarities. And I want to mention the differences. When somebody's like, well, you know, Moses just plagiarized Gilgamesh. <laughs> you know, no, he didn't. You're an idiot. You took one comparative religions class. Calm down. Um, it's much more nuanced than that. What you have in the other creation accounts, you have a divine struggle. You have Marduk slaying Tiamat. I split her body in half like a shellfish, Marduk boasts, the god of Babylon. And Tiamat was the chaos serpent that symbolized the deep, Tehom, Tiamat, the, the, the abyss. Uh, and it was symbolized usually by a serpent or a dragon. And Marduk brags, I slayed the Tiamat. I split her in half like a shellfish. And with one half, I made the sky. And with one half, I made the earth. Um, that's the creation accounts in the ancient world were filled with combat. The way the gods of blank overcame and ruled was by slaying the forces of blank. And so combat was the means of creation in all of the surrounding, almost all of the, all that I'm aware of, surrounding cultures. There's no divine combat in Genesis 1. That's one of the things that would just blow the minds of the original audience of Genesis was like, wait, our, Yahweh, our God, didn't fight anybody to create. He just did it in Genesis 1. Yeah, he just, he, our God, unlike the gods of Egypt, unlike the gods of uh, Canaan, unlike the gods of Babylon, who have to make war, in order to bring forth, our God speaks. He speaks and creation obeys. He speaks and creation exists. He doesn't work with pre-existing stuff. He speaks in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. So the God of Israel is very different already from the, the other cosmology or yeah cosmologies of the ancient near east in that he doesn't struggle he does there's nothing that opposes him he's the ultimate source of all being and so this is a very ancient near east way of presenting creation but it also has profound philosophical concepts for later philosophically minded uh interpreters there's no cosmogony and and cosmogony is the birth of a god you know, like Venus busts out of the floor. I think it was Venus, maybe Aphrodite. I can't remember. I'm not up on my Greek. Whichever one burst fully formed out of the forehead of her father. Um, I think Venus was formed out of sea foam and came up out of the ocean. Um, you know, Zeus had sex with anything that walked. 
and gave birth to these half gods, demigods, whatever. Like there's all of these cosmogenies in the ancient world. There's no cosmogony in Genesis. There was not a time where God came into being. In the beginning, God. Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God. That's there's nothing before. So even as little kids, this helps us when your kid says, Well, who created God? Or what was what what happened before God created the world? That's that cat that question doesn't make any sense logically. It's like asking, what's that unmarried guy's wife's name? He's unmarried, he doesn't have a wife, so I can't even say what their name is because it doesn't exist. It's a, it's a it's a categorically uh, invalid question. God creating is the beginning of what we know of in modern scientific terminology would be the space-time continuum. So to ask what happened before creation is a philosophically nonsensical question because it implies that there's a time outside and over the space-time universe that came into being at the singularity. Well, if space and time, which Einstein shows us are linked together, came into being at the Big Bang, at the singularity, then there's no before. Because before is a measure of time, and they would all have to be in a bigger version of time. So you see the point? It starts to get a little heady, but the concepts are there. That the Genesis account doesn't have this pre-existing time of nothingness that God came into being in. For the Hebrews, in the beginning, God, Bereshith bara Elohim, God, he was the beginning. There was nothing, there, time itself didn't even exist apart from God's creation. And so that helps, at least helps us start to frame things, questions that we have. What was God doing before he created us? Was he lonely? Was he, you know, it's like, well, before doesn't have any meaning before creation. There is no before. It's weird. Let it think about it and let it mess with your head. But uh, this is kind of where the fun part of, of taking ancient Hebrew and then looking at what it's teaching and then asking modern scientific questions after we understand what the original audience got from it. Um, I've mentioned there's no divine struggle. There's no rival forces that God had to overcome in the Genesis account. Uh, there's cre It's creation ex nihilo, not creation from pre-existing stuff like the Egyptian accounts. The gods manipulate stuff and turn it into what we know of as creation. Um, there's none of that in Genesis. There's instead creation via word, just the speaking. In the, and this is why there was a later such an insistence on, sometimes in the wisdom literature, it would be called God's wisdom. Uh, in Greek later, got the logos, the word of God that created everything, because they saw even back in Genesis, God just speaks and thing, and creation obeys. Creation comes into being. And so this tradition arose of thinking about God's cosmic creative aspect and short-term shorthand using the concept of word, the logos. And the New Testament authors, John in particular, picks up on this very concept and says, yeah, in the beginning was the word, the logos. The word was with God and the word was God. And then a few verses later, the word logos became flesh and dwelled among us. Jesus, the incarnation. So what the New Testament authors are claiming is pretty staggering is that G they're claiming that this Middle Eastern Jewish carpenter's son from a backwater town of Nazareth 
is actually the word of Almighty God made flesh. That's a huge difference from, well, he was a good teacher that had good ideas and said love each other, and then the Romans killed him. Uh, whichever one of those is true, that's up to you to decide what you think. But the claims that the Bible itself makes about the person of Jesus do trace themselves all the way back to Genesis 1 and the word of God that, that creates everything. And you see this, read through the New Testament and look for instances of Jesus being the one who creates or upholds creation or sustains creation. And that's, that's where it finds its home in the Hebrew understanding of God's creative words. The last thing that makes Genesis 1 and 1 through 11 so different from other ancient Near East accounts is that humans in Genesis aren't an afterthought. In Egyptian cosmology, in Babylonian cosmology, humans were an afterthought. They were literally, I think in the Babylonians, literally humans, the gods were like, we don't want to make our own food. So let's make people that will feed us. And so they make humans. And the human's job is to feed the gods. That's why you go to a temple and you give gifts in the temple. That's it. Humans are an afterthought. And, and later, in like the Gilgamesh or the Atrahasis epic, when, when humans, you know why they send the flood in these other accounts, why there was a worldwide flood? Because humans were too noisy and the gods couldn't sleep. These loud humans, we got to wipe them out. And so send a flood. That's why the flood happened in the other accounts of the ancient Near East. Israel's scriptures are very different in the sense that humanity is not an afterthought. In the Genesis account, humanity is the crown of creation. Humanity is the thing on this creation that bears the exact imprint of God himself. Humans have the highest place in creation, earthly creation, in the Genesis account. Whereas in the other accounts, all these other parts of creation, rivers, seas, the sun, the moon, the stars, cows or livestock, serpents, sea monsters, which the term in Genesis that uses is sea monsters. Um, these things were all worshipped as gods and divine by the peoples around Israel. But for Israel, those things were all just preludes to the final thing that's going to come on the scene, which is humanity, the image of God. Very different, like night and day different from the surrounding accounts. And so if we don't understand that, we miss that huge, crucial detail that no other religion in the ancient world shared, which is that humans, not idols, Humans are the image of God. Humans are the literally image and likeness. That term, let us make man in our image and likeness, is a term that other Babylonian and Egyptian contexts referred to the actual statues of the gods that would be uh, inbreathed. There, there, there would be this whole series of events. Uh, that would happen. Catherine McDonald has written about. Or Catherine McDowell has written about this. Um, there were these whole Egyptian and Babylonian incantations and and um, ceremonies that were done specifically to take this create, crafted, created idol and turn it into a living 
extension of the God that it embodied. It was, it was called the eye opening and the mouth opening of this statue. And so we, we hear hints of this in the Genesis account when your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Um, McDowell talks about how that is a nod to these Babylonian and Egyptian concepts of the image, the idol, being brought to life to represent the God in the temple. Well, in the Genesis account, the idol, the image and likeness, Demuna and um, I think Pestle is the other word, they are, or Selim, that's right, Selim and Demuna, the image and the likeness is not a little stone figure that looks like the big version upstairs. It's man and woman. It's Adam, humanity. That's the image of God. And the temple is not this crafted building uh, somewhere that you go to to try to connect with this image of God so that the real God up there will listen to you. It's creation. It's humanity is created and placed in the Garden of Eden, which is parallel to the gardens that were right beside temples in the ancient world, where the idol would be and where you would feed the gods from by presenting gifts to the idol. And that was seen as feeding the gods. And so Genesis takes all of these concepts, but it's like re-images them in a way that points away from the cosmologies of the surrounding cultures, points to the one true God, the God of Israel. So um, <clears throat> we're, we're closing in. We're going to call it a day here. This is an introduction. If you're like, wait, we didn't even get to Genesis. Relax. We'll do this again next week. Um, we'll spend as long as we need to. We're not in any rush. I don't think COVID's going anywhere, uh, at least in the next few weeks. I would love it to. I pray that it does. But I want to spend the last few minutes giving you some stuff to go deeper on this because some of you, I don't know who's watching this live, but I know a lot of people will either watch this later or they'll hear the podcast, the audio. So I want to give you some resources that you can follow up on and, and you go as deep as you want. Okay. So, um, if you want to know, all right, hold on. I've always heard growing up creation. The Bible says seven days God created, that was it. And everything that science is saying about millions of years is all garbage, blah, blah, blah. Um, there's two resources that I want you to, to share with you. The first one is this book. It's called, and again, I apologize for the screen being backwards. Uh, I'm on an Android. We can't flip it. You iPhone guys, y'all can flip it on Facebook Live. I can't. The Genesis Debate. The Genesis Debate. This book, it's edited. Um, who's it edited by? Edited by David Hagiopan. Hagiopan? Hagiopan? It's edited by this guy. This basically gives, it's Genesis spelled with threes because it gives three different views on how Bible-believing Christians have always approached Genesis. Three different ways. And it lets advocates of each of the views present their case. And then the advocates of the other views get to critique their presentation. And then they get to respond. So it's like, it's like listening into a debate among different theologians. So this is an excellent book. No matter what your view is, it's going to be represented in here to some degree if you're a broadly evangelical Bible-believing Christian. Um, the next one, and this one's just really interesting if you're a science if you're into the science and the details, uh, this is The Genesis Question by Hugh Ross. 
He's an astrophysicist and uh, heads the ministry called Reasons to Believe. I don't always agree with everything Ross says and some of his interpretations, but in this one, he looks at Genesis 1 through 11, the sections we're talking about, uh, and asks all of the science-y type questions after reading the text. And so it's it's interesting because it gives you like a good way to look at the text and read what it originally meant to the audience. But then what he maintains is, hey, but there's some stuff in there that actually is pretty congruent with modern science. And he's not a young earth creationist. He's He, he believes the earth is millions of years, billions of years old. Uh, he's not a Ken Ham. He's not running arc experiences or things like that uh, as theme parks. Uh, so it's it's interesting. It's inter Even when I am like, mm, I'm not quite convinced, it's interesting and worth reading. The Genesis Question by Hugh Ross. Uh, then there's a couple, I only have them on Kindle, so I have to show you, but there's a, a one called The Lost World of Genesis 1 by John Walton, and this one is fantastic because it goes into the background of Genesis as um, the creation of a temple. And so what, in other words, what it means is it talks about how in the ancient world temples were seen as being created and how that language is actually what Genesis 1 in particular, Genesis 1, is describing, but of all creation. And so all creation is God's temple. And it's a really good book. It's readable. It's like 100 pages, 100 and something pages, not very long. And again, Walton, I don't always agree with him, but he's fantastic. And I always appreciate him. And he, he I think, is dead on in terms of noting the language of temple in Genesis 1. The other one on Kindle that I want to mention is uh, C. John Collins. So C, like letter C, John Collins. His book, it's called Genesis 1 through 4, A Linguistic, Literary, and Theological Commentary. This is the one, if you're like, wait a minute, I got questions about Adam, Eve, the serpent, all this stuff. What does it mean? And how do we interpret it in light of modern science? This is the one to get. Collins is a scientist by training and then later a theologian. So he answers, uh, he takes a look at it from, like it says, literary, theological, and linguistic. He looks at what words are being used, uh, what the terms mean, and then how would that fit into a broader scientific worldview. Excellent resource. If you do our Bible and Science Friends or Foes at Disciple Dojo, a number of the citations in the workbook you'll recognize from Collins's work. Um, another one that is very helpful is Henri Blochet. I think I said that right. Henri Blochet. Uh, I think it's a French name. Uh, Henry Blocker, <laughs> if you're a redneck, is what you would say. But his book, In the Beginning, the opening chapters of Genesis, uh, he again goes into a lot of detail in, in discussion of how to read Genesis and how not to read Genesis. Um, being able to see what it is and not reading into it all of our modern assumptions. So highly recommended. Now, we're going to up the scale of nerdiness. Uh, a commentary, two commentaries on Genesis. There are a lot of good commentaries on Genesis out there, including Walton's commentary on Genesis. It's good. But I'm going to recommend two in particular because I'm Wesleyan Methodist, and these are written by Wesleyan Methodists, uh, and they're excellent commentaries. First one is Bill Arnold. This is the Cambridge commentary, Cambridge Bible commentary series. Bill Arnold was at Asbury. Um, it's just called Genesis. And this is a fantastic, it's not too thick, uh, it, but it is a technical, I mean, you don't have to know Hebrew necessarily, but you're going to get footnotes and you're going to get like, this, this is not like 
light reading. Uh, but it's good scholarship. And a step up from this one in terms of uh, technicality is another Asbury College professor, Vic Hamilton. Victor Hamilton, his volume, this is Genesis. This is just Genesis 1 through 12. So this whole volume is just the opening chapters, or sorry, this is chapters 1 through 17 of Genesis. But um, Hamilton does a fantastic job of, of reading the text through the lens of an ancient Near East audience, which is what Israel was. Then even nerdier, because I know I've got some theology and, and seminary nerds uh, following along here. There's question about, well, how many authors put together Genesis? And of course, you know, Genesis was called together from different strands, J-E-D-P, um, you know, the priestly author, the Yahwist, the Elohist, da, 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 and it was all fashioned together and cobbled together. That's called the documentary hypothesis. Well, the, there's an alternative to that. There are a number of alternatives, but one of them that is fascinating and well worth reading if you're into the text and history is Dwayne Garrett. He uh, wrote Rethinking Genesis, the sources and authorship of the first book of the Pentateuch. And it's not a super thick book, but this one is fantastic. He goes through Garrett, really offers a critique of documentary uh, theories and then he gives like what he thinks is a better way to account for how the material that became Genesis got compiled over time. And so he's, he doesn't take a super conservative opinion, but he's also not super liberal. He, he's, I mean, he leans to more conservative in terms of the scholarship, the authorship of Genesis. But I really recommend this one, especially for people that are interested in the, the technical uh, questions. This one's, this one's a beast, even for seminary students to get through. This one's a rite of passage at Gordon-Conwell. But this guy is so influential, you can't know Old Testament scholarship without being familiar with his work. It's just, that's what it is. But he's a, he was a horrible writer. And so um, this is Meredith Klein's book, Kingdom Prologue. And it's as interesting as the cover looks. <laughs> it's, he was not a good writer, but he was a brilliant theologian. And he observed things in the text that like you, you mine this, this book I mine for gold because there's gold in here, but you got to wade through a lot of pages of like, dude, you could have said that in like one hundredth of how theologians aren't always necessarily great writers, but what kingdom prologue by Meredith Klein, it sets the foundation. It focuses on Genesis one through three, but the, it's Genesis foundations for a covenantal worldview. It's actually saying how Genesis opening chapters sets the stage for the entire concept of covenant and universality of creation and temple and new creation. And it is dense. It's not easy to get through, but there is absolute gold in Meredith Klein. And so I do recommend this with reservations that <laughs> this is not for everybody. Last one I'll mention, and then we're going to go because we're right at an hour. This is the complete opposite of this in terms of readability and accessibility. Sandra Richter, Sandy Richter's book, The Epic of Eden. Um, I'm going to tag Sandra in the comments on this because she's on my friends list, but she's phenomenal. And Epic of Eden, this is, this is what you'd give to the Bible study members or the retiree or the housewife or the college student that wants to understand the Old Testament big picture and how Genesis fits into what we read. This is what I recommend. There's a video series out there. There's DVD. She hosts it. She's fascinating and charming and wonderful and uh, high, high, high praise 
for Epic of Eden by Sandy Richter. So Disciple Dojo, we like to equip, engage, and empower people. So there's a, those are resources for you to listen to, to pursue, to dig in as you're making your way through the opening chapters of Genesis. We're going to come back next week, same time, Tuesday at noon, and we're going to go into, get into Genesis 1 itself. And we're going to go verse by verse. We're going to look at some translation issues. You're going to learn a little bit of Hebrew. Um, we're going to have fun because I love teaching Genesis. And it's been like six and a half years since I've taught it to any audience like this. Um, so four minutes over. Got to cut it here. See you next Tuesday. DiscipleDojo.org slash podcast. Subscribe. Please share it with us. We, It's only me. So I any word that gets out about Disciple Dojo, right now it's coming from me. I need your guys' help in growing this ministry. Everything we do is free, and everything we do relies on donors, including me being able to eat and pay rent and live and continue this ministry. So if you like, give. You can donate at DiscipleDojo.org, and especially during COVID, we really need monthly donors that would say, hey, I believe in what you're doing. I'm going to give you 20 bucks a month. Or I'm going to give you 200 bucks a month for those of you that are fat cats out there. Uh, anyway, we appreciate, I really appreciate you guys that are watching. Thanks. I wish I could hit the button and say hi and wave to all of you, but I multitasking next week, Tuesday noon. Have a great week, everybody.